0: Welcome to the Front Lines of Democracy, a new sub-series of GMF's out-of-order podcast that tells the stories of the individuals and institutions working at the forefront of democracy. My name is Jonathan Katz. I'm a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and the director of the Frontlines of Democracy Initiative. It's great to join the Out of Order team as a host today as part of this critical sub-series. Today's podcast picks up from our last conversation with USAID's top official for Europe and Eurasia, Brock Behrman, where we discussed the 24-7 efforts of USAID and US officials working in spaces from Italy to Ukraine to Georgia, working with governments, civil society, and the private sector and media to address and mitigate the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Barack, like many officials dealing with the coronavirus globally, highlighted several significant challenges facing citizens, civil society, and governments as they addressed the pandemic, including first and secondary issues from health and medical needs to economies in distress to democratic backsliding, human rights, and media under attack. We also discussed the challenges of corruption and those seeking to take advantage politically and financially during the coronavirus crisis and the importance of independent media, transparency and accountability, especially given the challenge of disinformation from sources such as Russia and China. Now, there's been no one more focused on the front lines of these issues than Drew Sullivan, the co-founder and publisher for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP, recognized globally OCCRP has won numerous awards in its work on the Panama Papers with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, won a 2017 Pulitzer Prize in Journalism. OCCRP's mission took on new meaning with the coronavirus, and they have been quick to step into the breach and focused on issues impacting such things as reliable information, addressing head-on autocrats and criminals, and others trying to take advantage of the crisis for personal gain, or to restrict independent media. I want to highlight OCTRP's launch of Crime, Corruption, and Coronavirus, which is an in-depth resource page with daily stories, investigations, and analysis on disturbing broader trends related to COVID-19. Now, this is an especially important week. Uh, World Press Freedom Day is on May 3rd, and I, I can't think of a better person than Drew Sullivan to have the opportunity to discuss these challenging issues with. I spoke to Drew in early April as the initial impacts of the coronavirus were being felt in Europe and Eurasia and globally. And I think you really want to listen to this conversation. No dictator,
1: no combination of dictators will weaken that determination.
0: Thank you again for being here. I wanted to ask you about what you're seeing as the coronavirus unfolds. What are the What's the impact of the virus? Are you seeing a, an uptick in corruption, corrupt actors, laws that are being put forward in the fog of the coronavirus that have you concerned? And then I'll ask you in a little bit about what you think should be the response.
1: So over to you. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. And it's it's the perfect storm, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's really what happened to us. And it's just hitting so many different levels of economy, business, society, everything. And that's having incredible rippling effects that are going through. And, you know, Bad actors will continue to be bad actors. They don't, they don't change overnight. You know, those countries that are democratic and open, are, you know, tending to be democratic and open, and those who are bad actors are using the opportunity, obviously, to um, do a whole lot of stuff. And these can be broken down into, you know, a couple main areas. I think first, one of the things we're seeing is consolidation of power. So in a lot of places, especially autocratic countries, Um, we're starting to see laws in place and a lack of laws in place. For instance, in Hungary, where they've, you know, almost declared a form of martial law, you know, where the government can do what it wants and has not put an end to that, any indication of when that will end, where they can just kind of control all elements of government. And in places like Serbia, you're seeing, you know, the government propagate very specific laws that say things like um, those who who do fake news will be punished. Well, fake news, we've already come to the realization um, we don't agree with the Serbian government what fake news is. We're diametrically opposed on what I thought of that. So, you know, it's a situation where uh, a lot of governments are really trying to take advantage of the situation and, and propagate things that will not only affect us during the virus, but could well affect us from years to come. So restrictions on freedom of information. A lot of countries have passed laws essentially saying the government can say when it's an emergency and we don't have to do any more tenders, open tenders, and we can just give contracts out to people. All these laws are, are really quite ne- negative. At, at a time uh, when you have a severe public health crisis, you actually want greater transparency in government. You want to Explain to the people what's happening, and you want them to understand everything, not hide everything from them. Uh, The exact opposite is happening. So, you have that, you have the laws going on, and then you also have an uptick in propaganda and state control over media. Um, You know, one of the big problems is that, you know, newspapers, um, which are the one area, and, and websites, which are the one area that's not co-opted by government in most countries are a little bit harder to get during these difficult times. You can't go out and buy a newspaper. And yet the TV, which is controlled mainly by government in a lot of countries, is where people are getting their information. It's empowering the kind of the propaganda arms of these countries in the first place. And on top of that, um, they're very clearly trying to control the uh, narrative on what's happening out there. Because a lot of these countries are seriously performing poorly Because they're so corrupt and they're so non-responsive to their citizens that they're doing the exact wrong things during this virus and they'll get a lot of people killed. But I think they know that and they're immediately trying to control the narrative on the story so that when this is over, they will be the heroes regardless of how many people they killed. And there will be new enemies for the public to to hate. So we're seeing elements on the propaganda side. And of course, we're seeing old-fashioned theft and corruption, which is tenders are going out and they're being controlled.
0: Can I maybe jump in on that? Sure. Russia in particular, what's taking place there, you know, internally, but also this issue of disinformation, sort of almost a race to show that Russia is either okay or they're they're a positive contributor and I think there's an external motive to it but I'm curious what you think the, the the play is there by by mr Putin
1: yeah I mean it's it's the most cynical play of all I mean really he has decided that he is going to spin this whole situation to his needs be damned with what it's going to cause the people and there will be significant loss of life in Russia where you know health is a, a serious problem um, you know we've got a lot of problems with, with people with health issues. And so consequently, it's a good example. He, he has given aid to the United States when he certainly needs a lot of these resources himself. That's a public relations move. He's giving it to other countries as a public relations move. And yet in the same time in Russia, uh, the people do not know what's going on. There's great fear and trepidation of what's happening. And the government is clearly underplaying Um, the extent of the damage of the virus, and probably hiding deaths and other things. You know, the the government has very cynically decided just to recreate a whole history of this time period where they're going to say, we never caught the virus and we helped the rest of the world. And that seems to be their... their motivations on this and it's it's going to be really bad knowing the sources of information there do you get a sense that that, that, there, that there's local
0: reporting that there is you know outlets that have been following this I uh, places like Medusa and others are reaching uh, is it having an impact on the sort of R- R- Russian uh, public reaction to this do they understand it or is it still largely that Putin controls the media and also in a sense is covering up the failures of the government given that that the infrastructure of Russia has been weakened over the last, you know, really the last two decades to be able to withstand, uh, you know, even under the best of circumstances, to withstand a pandemic.
1: Yeah, I I just think the Russian government has decided they're just going to let the number of people die, you know one one point you know five percent, whatever it is will die and and that's fine as long as Russia comes out ahead of this, um you know, looking good in the way they want to look. so I mean I think i I talk to the people in Russia, and there's there's even a sense among journalists we don't really know what's happening, you know, there just isn't any information. Um, that's getting out on the broad spectrum. Individually, there are, you know, very heroic Russians who are public pasting and publishing information in Facebook and, and VKontakte and other places, you know, which are ac- accurately portraying the situation. But, you know, that's reaching a very small audience. I mean, you have the same people who read Medusa are not, you know, your, your general Russian, po- you know, uh, public. And so a lot of this information is just simply not reaching... Um, most of the public. You've um, done a lot of reporting, obviously, in the past on,
0: on grand scale corruption. And I, I think this is one of those moments where you're really seeing where, where weak governance and corruption sort of intersect and how it has left bare the ability of governments to respond. You've had a front and center seat to this for quite some time. And I'm just wondering if there's some real examples you're seeing and uh, why this has been a problem that needs to be addressed and will need to be addressed going forward.
1: Well, you know, I think one of the problems at this point is we haven't seen the full implications of this corruption and the bad policy because the disease is still propagating. And I think we will see that in, if you ask me that question in nine months, I think we'll be able to... um, give you uh, greater body counts, literally, um, in this case um, of, you know, the, the impact of corruption. But I mean, you do see, you know, you do do see small examples of it all, all over the place. I mean, it started initially in China, you know, where the, the, the immediate um, inclination of the government was to close off this information and to not let people talk about it um, which basically worsened the case in Wuhan. And I think you're seeing that in many, many places now. You know, um, in Russia, they do not have a particularly competent medical system in terms of you – know, I mean, they're fine with their doctors, but you know, in terms of the ability of the medical system to address a, a, a pandemic – um, that's just not there. And so there isn't the outreach, there isn't the testing, you know, there isn't the counseling of people, there isn't the public information sources and, you know, that convince people that they need to do stuff. So there's a general, I'd say a suspicion of government in most of these places. And so consequently, people are gathering a lot of information online, much of it really bad and, and making some health decisions based on that. But then in other countries, you'll see Azerbaijan is a good example. The, the government's been, has raised $87 million, largely from international donors and from some state agencies to kind of deal with this. Now, a wealthy oil country with just a few million people that, that's been living off oil well for two decades should be in a position to pay for a pandemic in the country. But in fact, the perfect storm that hits them is lower oil prices combined with, you know, the corruption that they've been doing, combined with the disease, um, has put them in a situation where they're essentially unable to deal with it and have to go out and get this this kind of money from other places. The United States contributed about a million and a half to that fund. Um, of course that fund is completely non-transparent, so we don't know how the money is spent. But we also know that the one of the large pharmaceutical companies, the head of that, his, her husband was caught smuggling a million masks down into Iran. So, so even in this, this pandemic, and that, of course, that organization is closely affiliated with the first family, in the midst of an epidemic, they're stealing, it's, it's more profitable to steal badly needed masks to give to a neighboring country than, than it is to use for its own purposes. So, you know, we see corruption already undermining the ability of uh, Azerbaijan to respond to that, that threat. So you're going to see a lot more of these as you go on. And the truth be told, you know, it's going to take investigative reporters a year to two years to really tell the story because there's just no information uh, being available. The government's not giving them inf- any information. And until these numbers kind of get into budgets and until it gets into, you know, uh, international data files like Comtrade and other things, we're not going to know some of the things that happened until much later.
0: Can I ask you on that? what What's needed right now for those that are acting as whistleblowers, those that are doing the investigations? Obviously, it's kind of hard because they can't, people can't necessarily travel in certain spaces anymore. What, what's needed from those that have long been partners or supporters of, of your efforts and others to uncover the truth? On the other flip side, I'll ask the secondary question of what would you like to see as political statements or support from, from, uh, from the United States and others that you know, can and should be weighing in?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think, you know, transparency is the big issue here and you know, transparency is to corruption as sunlight is to the coronavirus. I mean, you know, it kills it and um, you know, the greater the transparency in everything, the greater we can go through back through these what we've done during this time and correct ourselves for uh, you know, a future virus. This is not you know, this This is a huge issue. The next virus, if it's more deadly and is transmissible, can be that meteor strike on the planet. It can be that critical blow that really undermines the ability to maintain this kind of global trade and uh, economic situation. And you're seeing just on this particular virus, and it's just killing the 1% of the people or less, is is a serious problem. But if this continues, if we continue to have recurring waves of these, these viruses, it can seriously undermine, you know, uh, our basic economic system. And so consequently, we really need to understand what went well, what went wrong, how we deal with this. This isn't just an issue of corruption. It's basically, you know, an issue of, of life and death. It's a public health issue. And so consequently, there should be demands from all governments to other governments to um, make available all the information on how this was dealt with and how it was treated and what worked and what did not work. Because we can decide to ignore uh, one country and say it's corrupt, but that country could become, like Iran, a place that infects whole regions because people are going in and out of that. So from a basic public health standpoint, we all need to know what we did and we all need to know what worked, what didn't, and we need to know how the resources were applied um, and, and that's fundamental to kind of understanding when we go and look back at this, you know, in a year's time to try to understand what, what really truly happened. And that's, as journalists, what we need. I mean, we need access to the tender information, which right now is normally available in some countries, but particularly coronavirus information is being left off. Is there any examples of countries
0: where that's changed?
1: Yeah, and a number of countries have passed laws saying we don't need to make information available on coronavirus. It's a national emergency, and therefore we are going to issue tenders and and make contracts and buy things and do whatever we want, and we don't have to record it. And that's a number of countries have have passed um, legislation to that effect or not passed legislation, but effectively done that. You know, they're effectively not giving information out um, on this. And that's, that's the real problems. And I think you're going to find as countries get under pressure – to defend themselves if they've behaved poorly during the coronavirus outbreak, they're going to keep that information private and they're going to change the narrative, as I said. So that's where the propaganda kicks in. And then you can't release the information. So, I mean, I think this is, this is where the problem lies. I mean, nobody wants to be called a bad you know, politician uh, and a bad you know, leader of their people. And this is one where it's really kind of truly objective you know it's how did you deal with the virus it's not like there's any other issues the information was out there how did you behave did you do a good job and there's 200 other countries to compare against people don't want to be in the loser category can
0: i ask you where does china fit into this category right
1: now that's a good question i mean i i I think we're not sure because we're not really sure that we we know all the information so have there been larger number of deaths than the government has reported did they change the numbers I, I think you know that in general if you look at the disease track they have been able to deal with the disease for the most part although the uh, the how serious it was at the beginning is still uh, up in the question but you know they also took extreme measures i mean they welded people's doors shut they you know to keep them inside they took extreme measures to, to kind of do that each country off to make a a judgment as to what human rights were violated and, and what was fair and what was not to protect the public health. But other countries very clearly are hiding it or ignoring it, like, you know, Belarus, where Lukashenko is open for business and anybody can come in and we don't have a disease. And we'll see what the, uh, what the ramifications of that are. As, as I said, you know, a lot of this really isn't all out yet. And we're not going to know the full extent until the virus peaks. And with some countries, um, that will peak into summer and then it will come back in the fall. And so, you know, uh, they may not have had enough cases to cause the severe public damage in the spring, but it may come back and kill a large number of people in the fall. And then countries that did well in the spring may do poorly in the fall and vice versa. So on most of these countries, really, it's still not clear.
0: I wanted to ask you um, how you feel um, the U.S. has been in terms of U.S. government providing transparency, sort of accountability. And and I do want to dig a little bit deeper, too, not only out of the United States, but you mentioned some of the things that you and others may need. But in terms of resources for civil society, obviously the economies are going to be hit hard, and Western donors are also dealing with some very serious challenges. I wanted to get sort of brass tacks you know, is it resources that are needed? Is it political support and statements about these issues that you think will have an impact? What might be helpful since we're, we're talking to people about, about addressing it with assistance or other, other forms of support? So th- those are multiple questions, but I, um, I think they're all important.
1: Okay, I'll start with the U.S. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, one advantage of the United States is it is pretty transparent. And even if the federal government didn't want to put information out, the state governments are. And so consequently, I think we're getting a fairly good assessment of where we are. There is a question, obviously, whether the U.S. reacted fast enough. I think the problem that they had with tests is well documented and has been pretty much uncovered as to why that happened and and the repercussions of that. You know, Testing is really critical in a disease because it's how you control it. You you know, you have to isolate it now. Once it gets into full bloom, there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to um, to accept it. But at a certain point, you know, whether it's the, the summer or other things, you can you can reestablish control over the disease. But that takes massive testing of everybody around a bloom of the virus, and then consequently you can you can um, you can separate isolate that in a society, which they're doing very effectively in Korea. The United States clearly bungled the whole process because they had very poor testing at the at the beginning. And whose fault that is is a number of people's fault. Yes, uh, the um, administration has. Um, not been consistent, which has been a problem in kind of addressing it with national leadership. You know, people look to the federal government to be the national leaders on these issues, and uh, there's still some issues that they're solving. But in terms of kind of dealing with it from helping civil society and media and other things, from a donor perspective... You know, this is a really, really difficult story because information is not always clear to the people who hold the information. It's a very complex issue. It it, involves epidemiological studies and and you can't just take data like we normally do in journalism and draw conclusions. It's much more complicated than that. You know, there's all sorts of issues of comorbidity and other things that you have to to include. And, And of course, this is all private health information of citizens, which you know you can't always get access to. So it's a very complex issue. And in places where you don't have an open government, it's even worse. And so consequently, if you're a journalist in Hungary or Serbia, where not only you're dealing with a lack of information, but you're dealing with an antagonistic government that will arrest you should you cross the line into criticizing them, it's very problematic. So I think you need a combination of all those factors that you mentioned. I do think you need broad political support by Europe and the United States towards openness, transparency, support of media. I think there needs to be, uh, for the newspapers and those types of organizations, many of them will not survive this. This could be really the death knell to, to newspapers around the world where they'll never truly recover from this because people are just not out buying newspapers. And consequently, um, you know, they were reliant on a lot of transit point sales. And so consequently, they've lost those. And so, you know, that's going to put power, you know, in the hands of television, which is generally controlled around the world. So you need to really greatly enhance the support for the independent media that are out there And already they're dealing with propaganda and these restrictive laws and everything. And they're competing against, you know, Orban has spent over a billion dollars in media in Hungary alone. And that's basically money pouring into his oligarch-controlled media that is friendly to him. And the total amount of money from Western organizations has been in the hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe topped a million. So you're, you're dealing with this huge discrepancy. You know, Russia has spent you know, $2, 3000000000 billion easily a year on its media. And the United States doesn't, and, and Europe combined spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions back on media. So, you know, Russia's a cheap country. They don't spend money on anything. They don't give foreign aid out. They're just cheap about everything. And yet they're spending billions on media. And so is Hungary. That should tell you something. It should tell you it's important. And that's not being recognized by the U.S. and, the, and Europe. They're more generous than they used to be, but we're dealing with a situation where we're off by a factor of 100 in terms of where funding should be, literally a a factor of 100. You know, it's incredibly important that the public knows what's going on and gets fair and impartial information. And the government cannot do that itself. That's too expensive. And consequently, they really want to make sure that these types of organizations survive and prosper. And that's just not happening right now. And in fact, this is going to make it worse.
0: I did want to highlight that point. And just as you said earlier, we'll know a little bit more, you know, sort of nine months maybe down the road. But I think what we're also seeing is things are happening so quickly under the fog of this pandemic that we almost, we need the reactions today. So hopefully we can continue to have these conversations with you And updates. You know, I just wanted to ask you if there was any parting thoughts as we start to focus on these issues that you think is really critical for those that are uh, joining us to understand about the moment, the challenges, the threats um and the needs because i think we all need to in this moment pull back and remember that this pandemic is likely to stick with us for quite some time but also it may be a you know unfortunate dress rehearsal for something more significant as people have been saying and planning for and i just uh, want to give you the the final word um if there's anything that we missed in our conversation
1: you know the good news is that there are a lot of people out addressing this issue and that's really the thing that we should all be heartened by. I mean, I'm surprised by how effective civil society organizations in Washington and around the world have really jumped on this issue aggressively and are providing information. I, I was just, before our talk, I was on another talk where I was talking to journalists, about 400 journalists around the world, on a discussion of how they can more effectively cover this problem. So, I mean, I think that the good news is that people are motivated They're anxious. They recognize the historic nature of what's going on, and they're jumping into the void to do what they can. And investigative reporters are out looking at all these issues. They're identifying them, and they know what's going on, and they're looking for it. And that's why a lot of these records are being closed, and that's why governments are are closing up. So it's happening sooner than you would expect, and there's a greater global cooperation on this issue than than has probably on any global issue I've ever seen. Um, So, so that's the good news. You know, the bad news is that uh, the headwinds are strong, but, you know, I'm, I'm always encouraged by, you know, the people who go into this area are passionate um, about change. And this is, you know, this is historic and people are dying, you know, and all of us will be touched by this. We all have, have elderly parents or grandparents. This is something that affects everybody on earth. And I don't think that governments are going to be effective at trying to make this all go away with propaganda and uh, hiding stuff. There's just too many people's lives that are affected by this. And while some autocracies will be able to change the narrative and hide stuff, others are going to fail, and it's going to seriously undermine their relationship with their people, which could lead to regime change.
0: The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sidney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. That's a wrap. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.